Thank you for listening to the Alan Wright Sermons Podcast. I'm his son, Matthew, and we have been splitting up the sermons every other week at our house church that my wife and I host on our farm. If you're interested in joining us, check out wrightfarmhousechurch.com. Enjoy today's lesson. Today is the last lesson in our series on the, on the life of David in First and Second Samuel. Last week, I, I made uh, our family sit down, and, and we read this chapter together. Uh, and, and we did it in order to start meditating on the, on the last chapter of Samuel. Uh, the, and the results I received from my children were, what a bizarre chapter. What a bizarre chapter. What a weird way to end David's story, right? And if you were like me, the first time that you read through the books of Samuel, you came to the last chapter in the story, in this story, and you would expect an epic ending, right? An epic ending to an epic saga uh, that maybe had been displayed to us throughout these two books. Um, but it's not at all. It's not at all what, what, what we would have expected for a conclusion to an epic saga. It doesn't even tell us how David died. It doesn't even tell us what happened after he died. Instead, we get what seem like two miscellaneous stories, and they are, they are actually from earlier in, um, in David's reign chronologically. So, so let me give you an example. Let's say you're a big Harry Potter fan, right? And, and you've read all seven books in the series, uh, and you get to the epilogue, and you start reading it, and, and you realize that this part of the story, it doesn't belong at the end. That it probably it probably belongs somewhere in book three of the series. There's, there's no big reveal, and, and it seems like a B-side chapter that J.K. Rowling cut out and then decided for some reason to stick it right there at the end. All right, so, so uh, imagine with me that, that years later you decide to reread through this whole series, this whole Harry Potter series again. And you get, you get back to this same epilogue, but this time when you read it, some lights, the lights start going off. You realize it's not actually a random story at all. It's a story designed to show all the different sides of Harry Potter. On the one hand in this story, you see the worst parts of Harry, uh, you see this pensive, mistrustful, angsty teenager who who is isolated uh, and almost wrecks all of his friendships in in the early books, in the earlier books. But on on the other hand, you also see glimmers of the final Harry. Um, this is the Harry Potter who lays down his life for his friends. Uh, and, and now, upon rereading the story uh, and, and this weird epilogue that you're reading, you realize this seemingly mundane story from Harry's past actually points forward to two different future possibilities. One of the reasons the author plants a previous story at the end of this book suggests that the seeds of the future are always planted in the past. Even more so, it gestures beyond itself to new futures that could exist beyond Harry and his story. It gestures to new possibilities for a new world that could grow from Harry's life. The real question, though, in these future possibilities is whether it will be a world of sacrificial love, 
the true and better Harry that we see at the end of the story, or if it will be a world of distrust and isolation. This is exactly what 2 Samuel chapter 24 does for us, except in our case, it's a lot more honest than the made-up Harry Potter example here. It's a lot more hopeful uh, than that illustration is because this story isn't about Harry Potter. It's real. It's true. These things happened. This story is honest, and it's honest because even here in the last chapter, the narrator doesn't airbrush David's warts off. It presents him as the king in all of his self-reliant vanity, wielding and finessing his earthly power. But the story also takes, it takes a turn because there's, there's something very hopeful about it. There's also a different possibility. Uh, we see a king who repents, a king who trusts God, um, a king who intercedes for God's people in order to ultimately find mercy. We see a king, we see a, a, in the story a, a king who is going to lead Israel toward their ever intended destiny, worshiping and living in God's heavenly presence on earth. So the story opens up strangely and mysteriously even. In, in verse 1 of chapter 24, it says, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Now, we don't know at this point why the Lord is angry. And likewise, I don't think we can even begin to understand why he would incite David to do something wrong. And it's not really the point, but, but it is the point at the same time. And in order to move forward, we need to agree upon a simple statement that Christians of faith, Christians who understand that faith can be hard at times, that we can agree upon. Okay, the simple fact is that the Bible teaches us that God is God and God is good. We are not God and we are not good. Okay, that statement again. God is God and God is good. We are not God and we are not good. Relying upon this simple statement fixes a lot of the theological problems that we have that we might have with misunderstanding this chapter. Um, and, and if you look at your study notes in your Bibles, if you open up your Bibles and look at your study notes, you'll see that in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, which is the parallel chapter to this story in that book, it, it says that Satan incited David. David. This is the first time that Satan is mentioned by name in the Bible. But it's the same thing because God has a celestial order before the coming of Christ and God used angels, even bad ones. He used angels, even bad ones, to fulfill his will. He doesn't use angels the same way today as he used to because the celestial order before the coming of Christ, before the coming of Christ, it was God, angels, and then men. At the coming of Christ, there was a cosmic revolution of sorts. And the book of Hebrews makes it very clear that God turns that order around and, it, and, and, the, and the order becomes God, men in Christ, not men, but men in Christ, and then angels. Men in Christ now have authority and domain to rule, and we are above the angels. We are above the angels. But in this story, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, it's important to realize that the celestial order here and how God operated. Okay? But in this story, God seems to, he seems to incite David through 
Satan to do the wrong thing. And so David sins, somehow he sins, and then God judges, and then David repents of the sin when he sees it, whatever that sin is. So in this story, God uses judgment. He he uses judgment of sin prior to the sin, which causes David to sin. and, And then he uses judgment to punish the sin that he prejudged. And then David repents. And and if we were ever to take, just think with me for a second here. If we were ever to take our creator to a cosmic courtroom, as if we ever could, as if we, as if, as if there were some kind of cosmic courtroom to face him, which there isn't, there isn't, but we might ask ourselves, do we have material here in the story to present to the creator of the universe, the creator of the universe and the creator of, of our lives? Do we have material? And it might seem that we that we may have some some material to present to the creator and say, God, this doesn't make sense. And, and I need it to make sense. And, and that's why you're here with me in court, right? I need it to make sense. Do we have license to question the intent of Almighty God here? Paul in chapter 9 of Romans states in verses 20 and 21, he says, But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? And this is somewhat, it's a somewhat sophomoric response here by Paul because essentially what he is saying is just shut your yapper. Just shut your yapper and don't question it, guys. It's essentially what he's saying. And many who rely, many who rely on physical evidence, they'll read chapter 24 of 2 Samuel and they'll shut down and they'll leave the opportunity to follow Christ because it doesn't make sense to them. Ego takes over and self-reliance consumes us. And, and some say, some say, I can't believe in a God who, who won't explain everything to me. And that's when we become our own gods. Because ego needs to know everything about who we're serving. And that simply, it isn't faith. That is not faith. And and this is where we find as adult Christians that sometimes faith is hard. Sometimes faith is hard because faith is actually believing in what we don't see. And, And that includes sometimes believing in and what we don't understand about God. The reality is that Paul's right. Here in stating this in Romans chapter 9, sometimes we simply have to say, God is God and God is good. We are not God and we are not good. To follow this, we need to remember that God does not tempt us with sin. James chapter 1 tells us this, but but there are place, there are many places throughout the stories in the Bible where God absolutely does wield sin like a sword to fulfill his will. Absolutely he does. God wields sin. In his story, like J.R.R. Tolkien wields Gollum. Okay, think of it that way. Sometimes, sometimes God uses his holy hands to pick up dirty instruments to fulfill his will. The truth of the question of why did God do this in the beginning of this chapter is that we really don't know. But it might be here in this final story as a reminder that Yahweh the Lord cannot be tamed. He cannot be tamed. He will, sometimes he will seem wild to us in his love, wild in his mercy. He seems wild in his justice. It's a reminder that even though David's personality 
has loomed, has loomed so large in these books that at the end of the day, David is not the main actor in the story. God is. God is the main actor. And even King David has to find his place in God's story. It's never the other way around. It's never the other way around. We sometimes forget that, we sometimes forget that, right? And, and, and we try to make God a part of our story. And that's when we fail. That's when we fail. We are part of God's story alone. So the story goes on, as we've read in the chapter, and David takes a census, despite Joab correctly and wisely protesting uh, the census. And it becomes apparent that this isn't just some harmless counting of people. Um, this, this census is about conscri- conscription and military drafts and, and an extension of centralized royal power over all of the tribal societies that, that, used, to, that, that used to characterize Israel. Uh, David actually makes this clear in what he says about about the census in Joab. Verse 2 says, So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men, so that I may know how many there are. So now it needs to be made clear that taking a census of your troops is not wrong or sinful in itself. Jesus himself, Jesus himself in Luke chapter 14, verse 31, uh, encouraged it, uh, saying that counting of the troops is encouraged in planning your military endeavors. He says this. Uh, but here we realize David is David is no longer the humble leader now. When, when he he does not he, he doesn't heed Joab's wise counsel. Here he is being the royal military overlord. And maybe a portion of the sin he was committing was a lack of faith in God and a dependency upon himself and his own knowledge. It should be noted, though, that because this chapter is set chronologically earlier, we should think about what was happening around this time. Uh, about this time period, there was the royal drama that we saw happening back in a few lessons ago. The royal drama that, that was happening in the earlier chapters is shortly after the rebellion of Absalom and other rebellions that were going on around that time. And there was already a tension between the northern and southern uh, regions and it may be that when David heard that Israel had eight hundred thousand and Judah had only five hundred thousand fighting men, that David may have realized an error in in his ways by dividing up the northern and southern regions, who could very well go again to war against one another. But whatever David's sin was, he does it. He does this sin, and in the first part of the chapter, we we see one version of David, and it's in, and it's in a very negative light. Even David now does not want to be this version of David. And the path points forward to a future possibility that Judah and Israel are going to be characterized by power and by violence, by uh, command and by domination. And it's sad because that future possibility becomes a future reality. It does. It becomes a future reality in Israel and in Judah as the story continues, as more monarchs come and rise and fall. And the reality is that this is what happens in all of our lives and in all empires when we try and create and rule our domains, all while being unchecked by God's grace and by God's faithfulness and by God at all. It's an unpopular reality to teach in most churches, but the Bible is very clear that when Jesus returns, there will be a judgment and there will be a reckoning. Everyone will go to their knees before our Creator, and the things we've done in the dark will be exposed. 
whether good or bad, whether good or bad, those things will be exposed. And for Christians, our answer is the clothing of Jesus. That's our answer, which is that's great news. But this chapter shows us that God uses judgment to teach lessons even now. And one of the things about the time that we are living in is that judgment is happening now as well. God sometimes uses sin as judgment in order to teach a lesson. As an example, uh, whenever you see nonsense like gay pride today or a number of other degenerate behaviors that you cannot avoid, even when you go to the grocery store, um, this is God's judgment on us now. And it's a way of his saying, I'm not going to let you turn the proverbial TV channel and not see it anymore. People say it was so much better back in the 1950s, but that's simply untrue. People say, oh, I wish I wish we could go back to the 1950s when family values and, and traditional values were held to a higher esteem. But the problem was that our nation tried to do it without God. And we still are. The sin itself is a judgment, and Christians must take heed when God won't let us escape and turn away. We can either compromise in cowardice, or we can learn how to stand up and be vicious soldiers of Christ. And a spirit, a spirit of true repentance would actually want to know what we did. What did we do to get to the point where God is using sin to judge us? It's very simple. We rejected the lordship of Jesus Christ. We wanted, we wanted the traditional values, but not in the light of God's word. Uh, we, we wanted salvation without a savior. You can never have salvation without a savior. And in case you're wondering, the, the sin that led us here, it was secularism, self-sufficiency, and pride. If you think we can govern ourselves and keep a stable society without Jesus, just turn on the evening news. We cannot. We are in the throes of judgment for this very reason. And this is where David finds himself after committing this error. In verse 10, it says, David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. And we see here the slight opening of up, the slight opening up of a new possibility and a new kind of future. And that possibility opens up with repentance. But the sin that David has committed is not without consequences. Verse 15 says, So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. And this should be a sobering passage for us to read. But here in this passage, we are supposed to realize that these future possibilities for a king are not just vague and subjective concepts. These future possibilities represent human lives. Uh, these future, as the king goes, as the king goes, so the people go. This, this might seem unfair or, or even terrible. A bad king can destroy so much. And this becomes true with many of the kings who do follow David. But again, we're supposed to be thinking about the converse of this story as well. That a good king might actually be able to do the opposite. A good king might be able to save lives, to intercede and to save lives. To illustrate this, the author goes on to narrate two events that are happening simultaneously. The first one is in verse 16. It says, When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. 
The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. The second event is in verse 17. It says, When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. So these two events are an enormous theological rendering that we simply do not have time to explore in today's subject matter. But in verse 16, the end of the three days occurs, and God relents as he said he would, but it is illustrated for us in a way that says God was grieved. And in verse 17, we see a king taking responsibility for his people and and committing to sacrificing his own well-being to take the punishment of his people on himself. There are two shadows here of Jesus, two shadows here of Jesus, the perfect king to come. Jesus would refer to us as his sheep a number of times in the gospel, and Jesus will take the punishment of our sins in the perfect sacrifice in the future. David is far from innocent in this story, but maybe the author in these two verses is inviting us to imagine the possibility of an innocent king doing what David is doing right here, but with a perfectly pure heart. This is inviting us to imagine a king who actually lives by faith in the Lord, a king who is actually merciful, a king who sees the sins of God's sheep and, like a good shepherd, lays down his life to rescue them. Is it possible that when we look at the beginning of this chapter again, when we think back to the beginning of this chapter again, and we take God to court and say, why God, why did you judge and incite David into sin? That this story is trying to tell us with a bullhorn that the perfect king is coming. Is it possible that's what it's trying to tell us now? Is the obvious point being missed? Is it being missed simply because we can't get our egos out of the way because we're distracted by hurt feelings because God didn't explain one of his actions? Maybe the whole point of this story is to teach us to fully get out of our own conceited ways and fall on our knees and find the obvious lesson that our perfect king was foreshadowed in this chapter and that he is ruling today. Can you see the outlines of Jesus being drawn by these strange and seemingly miscellaneous stories? In the final section of 2 Samuel 24, in the final verses, in verses 18 through 25, David goes to the spot where he saw the angel standing on the threshing floor, and he purchases it it from the owner, and he builds an altar to God there. This is going to be the future site of the temple, and, and again, the future possibilities. Future possibilities begin to burst open in front of our eyes. The idea that a king might come who could bring God's presence to dwell on earth the same way God dwelled in the temple. A king who will come who could reunite heaven and and earth so that God's people could do what they were always made to do, to live with him, to worship him, to enjoy him. The author leaves us with an astonishing shadow of Jesus and, and, and Jesus and his church in the last verse, in the last verse, David was the shadow of Jesus And Israel is now his church. We, the church, are Israel. Don't let the nightly news steer you otherwise. Verse 25 says, David built an altar to the Lord there and and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. 
Can you see the outlines of Jesus now beginning to be filled in? The living temple, the one who was the living place of God's presence, the king who unites heaven and earth in his own flesh and through his resurrection promises to unite heaven and earth eternally. This final chapter is, it is artistic subtlety at its finest. It is theology at its finest. It's a beautiful piece of scriptural meat, meat that those who are still drinking scriptural milk should really strive to understand better because it is incredibly encouraging. It is honest about the failures of human rule. Israel's first and greatest king in his final evaluation was a failure. And, and his progeny, his progeny, his children, they will be failures as well. And us, us, when we take rule and ownership over our own lives, we become failures too. We can't rule ourselves well, much less try to rule others well. But this final chapter is just bursting at the seams with raw and, and hopeful potential. What if a different kind of what if a different kind of king could come along whose mercy and sacrifice could intercede for us before God? Whose life and reign would establish God's presence and, and God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? What if? What if? That's the question 2 Samuel chapter 24 is trying to leave us with. What if? A question that we have to account for in our own lives because Jesus came and he He claimed audaciously, he claimed audaciously to be exactly the kind of king that we long for. And and if he is that king, we have to to ask ourselves a question. Will I continue to rule my own life and continue to see the downfall of myself and those around me that I love, no matter how hard I try to create utopia and live with traditional values? Or will I enter into his kingdom— Well, I entered into his kingdom through his mercy and experienced the reunion of heaven and earth in my heart and in my home and in my community. And and one day, praise the Lord in all creation. Can we we set down our our crowns, our proverbial crowns and and our scepters and give our allegiance instead to, to King Jesus and to his kingdom? The story of the books of Samuel, they show us that David wasn't the perfect king, but the author makes our hearts long for him. And, and we, know, we know who he is. We know he, he is Jesus. So, so let's give our lives to him. Thank you for listening to the Alan Wright Sermons podcast. We hope you'll join us next time. God bless you and have a wonderful week.